0: Let's cultivate our motivation. It may happen that as we get into the Dharma more and more, our relationships with other people change. At least from our side, we want them to change. The other people may still expect us to relate to them as we did before. So our parents may expect us to behave as their child. Our friends, who we used to go drinking and drugging with, expect us to continue doing that, and so on. And yet we have changed, and we also realize that we want to have relationships that uh, have fewer expectations and are not so bound by clinging and attachment. And yet, the other people haven't practiced the Dharma, they don't have that wish for the relationships to change in that way. So this occurrence is very common. It's not unusual at all. And it takes some time and some finesse to work through. Both in the sense of our being very clear in our own mind about how we want to relate to people now that we are seriously into uh, spiritual practice. So that requires time and a lot of uh, care. And then how to express that to other people in a way that doesn't offend them, also requires care, and time, and knowledge that sometimes we cannot prevent people from uh, being disgruntled about the change in how we're going to relate to them. But ourselves accepting that without feeling guilty because there was no bad intent on our part to hurt other people. So part of the change that has happened is that our feeling of closeness with others is now expanding as practitioners. It's not limited to sticky relationships with friends or parents, but it's much more open and uh, welcoming to many different kinds of beings without so many expectations and uh, attachment. So we want to continue to uh, open our hearts in that way towards all living beings in an equal way, which is not how worldly people relate to others, which is usually in, with attachment and anger and bias but we're really trying to weed those out of our mind and care equally about other living beings. So we contemplate like that in our meditation and then we hope to bring that flavor into our relationships with others so that we can actually generate the bodhicitta. So let's at least do that in our minds now as a prelude to listening to teachings. So this time when we're meditating and generating our motivation before teachings is a very good time to try and uh, open to that impartial way of viewing others because uh, we're in a physical situation where the people around us are not going to be throwing out hooks for us to bite. Mm -hmm. So we can cultivate that kind of open heartedness towards everybody. Uh, It's more difficult when we know that immediately following our meditation, gonna be with people who we have a long history with, who may have other expectations of our behavior. And yet we have to be clear and steady and strong yeah otherwise if we go back and forth between you know oh i'm your child no i'm a buddhist practitioner oh i'm your best friend let's go to the movies to uh no i don't want to get attached uh then other people are going to get pretty confused and be pretty unhappy okay so we have to be quite clear in our mind about the change in Uh, how we're going to relate to people and feel comfortable with that and also see the reason for it. uh, Because in Buddhism we're learning a kind of love and compassion that are very different than worldly love and compassion. Okay? So, uh, if we aren't clear, if we aren't determined, then it's going to be very, very hard for the other people because we're going to waver back and forth between being close and, and setting, you know, a new relate type of relationship. So that's why it's very important to be clear in our, in our own mind. Yeah, And then, you know, other people will take some time and they'll get used to it. Yeah. And uh, some will get used to it sooner and easier than others. But uh, eventually they will, if we're clear. Mm -hmm. Any questions about that at all? It's something everybody goes through, especially when, when you ordain. Uh, or even you don't ordain, if you're very into your dharma practice, it's a major part of your life, Uh, then the way you relate to your family and your old friends is really different. You know, you're not going to go out and do the same things with your old friends that you used to do. And, uh, you know, your relationship with the family will be different too. You're not going to act as a son or daughter, brother or sister, whatever, parent. So just remember the Buddha had to go through that too. (laughs) He was involved in, you know, the family scene. Plus he had the whole kingdom, you know, their expectations of him. So not just family and friends, you know, but his wife. And the whole harem, and uh, and then all the people in the kingdom. So, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I like how you mentioned expectations. Having relationships without expectations, and then it's hard for me to imagine feeling close to someone without having any expectations. Even they know I'm alive, or they, you know, they'll say hello or. They'll acknowledge my presence.
0: Yeah, it's just... Yeah, I mean, we have certain expectations just in society of how people will interact. But like I was saying in the forgiveness retreat, we also have to mentally have a caveat that sometimes people are not going to act according to our expectations. Yeah, but it was interesting... Uh, many of your expectations were uh, centered around that they pay attention to you. Yeah? We had somebody come here uh, many years ago to train us in Anagarika, and his main complaint was uh, that like people would come in the room and not say hello and, and uh, not pay a lot of attention to him, apparently, at his family's home, whenever people came in the room, they would talk, they would do that. And here he was in a monastery uh, where people were working and they weren't gonna interrupt their work every time somebody came in, which would probably be every five minutes. And he felt offended, yeah? So it's interesting uh, not only to look at our expectations, but look at how um, we crave just the acknowledgement of our presence. Yeah? And how much uh, the grasping at I needs that constant reaffirmation that, yes, it exists. Somebody said hello to me, I exist, you know? Somebody talked to me, I exist. So this, this grasping at I is quite amazing when you look at it that way and how uh, delicate it is because if somebody is busy and just walks through the room and doesn't acknowledge us, our eye is like, what did I do wrong? They don't like me. Or they're so rude. Who do they think they are? And all of a sudden, you know, this tiny thing we get really upset about. Yeah? And then we bring it up to the other person. You didn't say good morning to me. And they're going, give me a break. You know? I wasn't born on this planet for the purpose of, you know, saying hello to you every time I see you during the day when I see you 10, 15 times during the day. Yeah? Yeah. So we have to look at that, that attachment.
1: Uh I've been complaining to Venable Jampa that people say hello to the cats, but they don't say hello to the people, meaning me.
0: (laughs) And that's probably true. But you see, the cats, it's interesting. They don't demand our attention. In fact, yeah. mostly they ignore it. We say a lot to them, and they just look somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not Mudita. not Mudita. She pays attention. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just think, you you know, you may not be. Uh, soft and cuddly and purr, but you have a precious human life, so you're more fortunate than the cats. Yeah? And also, could you imagine somebody coming along and going like this to you all day long? You know, rubbing your belly, rubbing your back. It's like, oh, leave me alone already. <laughs> Yeah. Looking in your ears, you know, looking, oh you scratched yourself here. Oh we get we better brush your fur. Yeah. I mean you have a precious human life. You're you're fortunate. (laughs) Although we could, you know, try that if you want. Okay. So, uh, last time we started on the specifics, specific characteristics of uh, karma. And we, I believe we're in the middle of page 240. Is that correct? So, we're going through the, the sutra quotations where Buddha describes destroying life and uh, taking what is not given, conducting oneself wrongly in matters of sex, uh, telling lies, uttering divisive words, speaking harshly, and indulging in idle chatter. Okay, so uh, we, we covered the sutra quotations about that. We'll go into those in more detail in a little bit. Okay, so when those four that have to do with speech are done by writing, signaling, typing, or nodding the head, so even though they're not verbal through the mouth, they are still considered non-virtues of speech because they involve communication. Okay, so you can lie through your gestures. Yeah, somebody says... Oh, you, you're so kind, you must be a bodhisattva. And you go. (laughs) You know, or you go. (laughs) Or you go, "Mm, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, you know, communication doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're writing or speaking. It's, it's communicating the point to the other person. Okay, so then three non-virtues are done mentally. Covetousness, malice, which some people translate as ill will, and wrong views. So the Buddha describes these also in the numerical, um, the, the Nikaya involved in, with the numbers, okay. So there is a person who is covetous. He covets the wealth and property of others, thinking, oh, that what he owns might belong to me. (laughs) How can I get him to give it to me? There is also one who has malice in his heart. He has depraved thoughts. Such as, let these things, let these beings be slain, let them be killed and destroyed, may they perish and cease to exist, may they get hit by a truck. That's our modern version of saying it. Okay, he has wrong views and perverted ideas, such as, there is no ethical value in a gift, offering, or sacrifice, there is no result or recompense recompense from constructive or destructive deeds. There is neither this world nor another world, in other words, no rebirth. There are no duties towards mother and father. There are no spontaneously reborn beings. There are no ascetics and Brahmins in the world living and conducting themselves rightly who can explain the world and the world beyond. Having realized them by their own direct knowledge, so that's somebody who's denying things that exist, okay, and things that exist that are important relating to spiritual practice, okay? So it's not like the uh, the member in the House of uh, of <laughs> of representatives who who said, I didn't say that to AOC, you know, when she heard it and a reporter also heard it. So it's not, you know, denying that, having the wrong view. Uh, Well, that would actually be lying, you know, rather than wrong view. But, uh, yeah, so wrong view specifically denying things that exist. Okay, why covetousness, malice, and wrong views? are associated with attachment, animosity, and confusion, respectively. They are more specific and intense forms of those afflictions. The mental factor of attachment becomes the karmic path of covetousness when it has the wish to take possession of property belonging to others. So it's not just a a passing thought of, "That's, that's nice, you know. It's like... I'm going to arrange to get it (laughs) somehow. Um, Covetousness is not a random thought of attachment, but the greedy desire to possess something that belongs to someone else. This desire has been cultivated and increased by repeatedly thinking how nice it would be to have that object and planning how to obtain it. This thought has the power to generate a rebirth. It may also instigate someone to steal or lie to obtain the object coveted. Okay, so it's just not just a moment or two of of attachment, it's much more developed than that. Okay. The mental factor of anger becomes the karmic path of malice when it wishes to inflict harm on another living being or wishes that person to suffer by another means. The milder anger that simply wants to avoid someone we just quarreled with is not the karmic path of malice. Okay, so we did just had a fight or a disagreement with someone. We don't feel like being around them, so we avoid them. That's not malice, okay? Malice is... You know, I don't like this person and I want to inflict harm or put them in harm's way or, you know, I, I'm really wishing them to suffer in some other way. Okay, So it's a really kind of disgusting mind when you think of it, you know, wishing somebody else to suffer. You know, don't you think so? And And, you know, I think that kind of mind... Often erodes our own self respect. Yeah, because we think, what kind of person am I that I take delight in watching somebody else suffer? Yeah, so it's sad. There's people in society who really thrive off doing that. Yeah, but as we can see, those people also are very unhappy. The mental factor of wrong views becomes the karmic path of wrong views when it strongly holds an incorrect view, such as believing the three jewels, the four truths, and the law of karma and its effects do not exist. Here someone defiantly thinks, it doesn't matter if I exploit the other person. I won't suffer any consequences. Or... Killing heretics is virtuous. Mm -hmm. Killing the enemy, you know, is good. I might get, you know, some acknowledgement for it. Or thinking neither rebirth nor liberation exists, you know. All these people who are trying for it are just, they're living in Peter Pan, la la land. They need to put their feet on the earth and, you know, because none of that stuff exists. So such ignorant views leads to unfortunate rebirths in future lives. So they say that, you know, of the ten, we may think killing is the worst because it deprives somebody of their life, which is what all beings uh, cherish the most. But actually, it's the last one, wrong views, that is considered the most damaging, because when we hold wrong views, especially uh, thinking uh, karma and its effects don't exist, or rebirth doesn't exist, then we give our permission, ourselves permission to act in any old way, and we can easily wind up creating all sorts of horrible negative karma because we have the wrong view that it doesn't matter, there's no long-term result, and as long as uh, I don't get caught, there's no problem with behaving this way. So it's interesting, isn't it? The one that is the last one that you only do mentally can actually be the worst because it, it uh, underlays so many of the other ones. The first six non-virtues directly harm others. Although idle talk does not directly harm others, it provokes people to act in ways that do. Okay. <laughs> it sure does, you know. We talk about something and, and we praise it, and then we encourage somebody else to to do that or get involved in that. Mm-hmm. The harmful effects of the ten non-virtues are evident, even to animals. If someone takes away an animal's food, an act that resembles stealing, the animal is miserable. And they will meow and meow and meow until you bring that food back. (laughs) So they will also make you miserable. I don't know. Do dogs do that too? Probably. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If someone shouts at an animal, it is unhappy. Yeah, just like people. Once someone begins to covet the possessions of others, even his or her close friends are wary and keep a distance. That's true. Yeah. If our friends sense that we're always kind of looking around at their stuff they're not going to be so at ease with us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Someone who uses their sexuality unwisely or unkindly loses the trust of others. And now in the Me Too movement, they may lose their reputation as well because somebody will, may call them out. This is the experience of sentient beings in general. It doesn't matter if they are religious practitioners or not. To stop engaging in the non-virtuous actions that no one likes, we have to counteract the three poisons that motivate them. Since doing that takes time, we begin by restraining our physical and verbal actions uh, that directly harm others because those are, one, the easiest to control, okay? Uh, controlling mental actions is more difficult, but controlling physical and verbal ones is easier. And who we try and control those first because they directly harm others, and we wanna stop uh, being an obnoxious person who leaves a path of destruction in our wake. Four branches must be present for a complete destructive karmic path to be committed. So destructive, negative, uh, I'm, I'm switching out words here, you know. Also positive, constructive, virtuous, because uh, it gets quite tight always saying positive and negative. Yeah. And I think constructive and destructive, it gives us a slightly different feeling. You know, what is constructive because it constructs happiness? What is destructive into that it destroys happiness and destroys relationships? So four branches must be present for a complete destructive karmic path to be committed. Okay? So... If you have all four branches, it's a complete one, which means that it will have the power to propel a rebirth. If it doesn't have all four powers, all four branches, it may or may not propel a rebirth, okay? So uh, the four branches. Sometimes it's described as three parts, a preparation, an action, and a conclusion but often it's described in, as four branches, okay? Where the first one is the basis, so the object or the sentient being acting acted upon. Okay, so knowing clearly who or what we're acting on and, and actually doing that without mistaking the object. The attitude, which is the second branch, it has three parts. So the first is the correct discernment of the, act, of the object, acting on what we want to, uh, the presence of an affliction, okay, and the performance uh, and the motivation to do the action, so the intention, okay? Uh, and so if there's no affliction, then it's not going to be a non-virtuous action, yeah? If you misidentify the object, it's it's not going to be a complete non-virtue. Third is the performance of the action. So you do what you have the intention to do, motivated by an affliction. And fourth, the completion of the action, which entails our accomplishing our purpose and being satisfied with the outcome. Okay, in other words, not having any regret afterwards. Uh, yeah, just going, oh, good. I, you know, I really gave it to that person. Yeah, without, you know, no sense of uh, of remorse or integrity or consideration for others. Okay, so we're going to go through the ten. Uh, looking at these four points. The first one's killing. So the basis, a sentient being other than yourself who was alive. So a a sentient being is any being who has a mind, excluding a fully awakened Buddha, who feels happiness and pain. Okay, that's what a sentient being. So you have to, for it to be a complete action, It has to be somebody else, not yourself, okay? That does not mean that suicide is okay or that suicide is uh, karma-free, okay? Suicide is a great tragedy and it uh, harms oneself, it harms so many other people and uh, destroys their happiness leaving many of them distraught. And I'm often asked about that, the Buddhist view of suicide. And um, maybe because suicide is on the rise in this country now. Uh, But it's really a great loss because when you think of how much good karma we worked hard to accumulate in previous lives, in order to get a human life, which is considered a fortunate life, then it's, and in a human life, there's the possibility to plant the seeds of Dharma. Yeah. So we may not be great practitioners, we may be in a lot of pain, we may feel lonely uh, or anxious. But there's still the possibility of putting good imprints on our mind uh, because we have a human life and we have the ability to understand the teachings. So, yes, we can put uh, good imprints on animals' minds uh, by chanting prayers and saying mantra around them, and that's good, and that's also a, a strong reason why not to euthanize animals? Because there's still the possibility of planting those good seeds. But even more so with human beings, because human beings can understand the, the meaning. Okay? So it, the idea is kind of until your body completely cannot sustain your mind, the, the mind stream, use whatever ability you have to put good imprints on your mind. And so destroying, you know, one's own chance to do that by suicide is considered a a real loss, you know, a real tragedy. Yeah. And it causes uh, other people an incredible amount of pain. So it seems like somehow when, when people suicide... The foremost thing in their mind is their own pain, not the pain that others will experience if they die, you know, because some people get themselves wound up into thinking their life isn't worth anything. But uh, to the people that care about them and love them, their life is worth a lot. So it really uh, destroys a lot of happiness like that. Okay. But I am not trying to make somebody feel guilty about suiciding. I'm not trying to do that. But I am pointing out, you know, it's good to broaden, broaden the mind and the perspective, yeah? And see that your life can have meaning. Uh, even if physically you can't do a lot, because the mind is so powerful, you know, and even you're sleeping half the time because you're very old or whatever, you know, still you can have Dharma teachings playing pujas, mantra recordings, playing. Um, this is all very good for the mind. Okay. So uh, the attitude, first part, is discerning a living being as a living being and correctly identifying the living being to be killed. So if you want to kill Joe, but you accidentally kill Bruce instead, then the killing action isn't 100% complete. Okay. If you just want to kill somebody, you don't care who it is, then it doesn't matter who you kill. It becomes complete. Okay. Then any of the three poisons of attachment, animosity, and confusion uh, can lie behind the killing. So attachment to eating uh, that being's flesh, hatred towards an enemy, or confusion, thinking that animal sacrifice is virtuous. Yeah, so killing can be done for with many different kinds of motivations. Yeah, it could be out of jealousy, out of arrogance, out of, you know, many different kinds of things. And then uh, the third part of the attitude is the desire to kill, the intention. Then the action is taking the life of a living being or causing or asking someone else to kill. By weapons, poisons, or other form of violence. Okay, so doing it yourself, causing somebody else to do it, such as, um, you know, threatening to kill them if they don't kill somebody else, uh, or um, asking somebody else to kill. You hire a hitman. Okay, and so the killing can be by weapons poisons, other kind of violence, yeah? Uh, So this also includes most cases of abortion, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. So we have later on in in this book, I think it is, uh, some discussion of these contemporary issues. But just to talk about it now, so that people don't go crazy until we get to that chapter, because I know that these issues are very hot topics and can arise a lot of emotion, okay? So abortion, because uh, from a Buddhist viewpoint, as soon as the consciousness enters the fertilized egg, that is a living being, okay? Now, it's true we don't always know when the consciousness enters the fertilized egg because now we have all sorts of other ways of conception that didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. So, you know, if you have, um, you know, in vitro fertilization, does the consciousness enter at that point or does it enter after the egg attaches uh, to, you know, the egg is fertilized, but after it attaches to the womb of the mother, you know? We really don't know, okay? But it's sometime around that, okay? So uh, abortion is a very difficult topic. Personally speaking, I think it's... uh, The fact that it's become so politicized is really damaging and uncompassionate for everybody concerned because you see people getting angry because other people have abortions and you see people getting angry because people don't have abortions. And what use is generating so much negative karma over this, especially when it's, you know, somebody else's body. Yeah? And just the politicization is really, really unfortunate. Okay? So, for me, this issue is also personal because uh, I'm the oldest child in my family. My brother's three years younger, okay? Okay? And then my mom had cancer, so she couldn't have, have any more kids. I really wanted a sister, okay? And I think my parents wanted another kid. And, you know, and it wasn't going to happen naturally. And so my uh, we adopted a child, yeah? It came all of a sudden. My parents had put the request in with some attorneys a long time ago. And then one day they called and they said, they said, some woman's having a baby and uh, is putting it up for adoption. Do you want it? We had no, nothing for babies in the house because I was already 15. My brother was 12. You know, we had nothing for babies in the house. So, We had a family meeting that took about 30 seconds because we all said, Yes! We want the baby! (laughs) You know, go get her! (laughs) And yeah, I really wanted a sister. And, um, you know, and then getting some kind of baby things because two days later she came home. She was two days old when she came home, you know? My sister... Years and years later, located her birth mother, and she found out that um, the pregnancy was due to a rape. Yeah. But I just was so happy that her birth mother didn't have an abortion, because I have a sister because of that. You know, And I love my sister very much. So I'm very grateful. I mean, her birth mother must have had a really hard time in that kind of situation. But I really appreciate what she did um, because my sister really, I mean, she's part of the family and she's, you know, she was actually the child. My brother and I both grew up and moved out. She was the child who was at home when my parents got old, who did most of the caring for them, yeah? So, uh, yeah, so that, I just want to share that, because I think, uh, yeah, unwanted pregnancy undoubtedly is a difficult situation for the mother, for the father, for the child, for the, the extended family. Um, I think politicizing it and threatening people and making a crime out of it and so forth is, um, is horrible. It does not ease a difficult situation. Yeah. But if people could consider having the child and, and giving it up for adoption, then somebody else like me who wanted a sister... And a family like mine that wanted another child but couldn't have one, um, you know, might be blessed with that child. Okay, euthanasia. So, you know, a lot of people think your animal is dying or or your father is dying. And, you know, and you should put put them out of the pain of the death process, okay? Um, That is also considered killing, yeah? Uh, With pets, you know, people often feel that it's compassionate to to kill, to euthanize the pet rather than to let it suffer. by getting so old and and the pain of the dying process and so on. When we asked Lama Yeshe about this years ago, Lama would kind of go like this for a little bit. and Because this question usually came up at most courses. And he would say, if you know that animal's karma and where it's going to be reborn after you kill it, and it's going to be in a happier rebirth, then it's okay to euthanize it. But if you don't know where it's going to be born, and it could be born in a more miserable rebirth, then better not to. Mm -hmm. Because he's looking at it from the broader perspective, not just this life and you die and you're out of suffering. But the next life also. Okay. Speaking of which, one of the inmates I, I write to, um, he had, I mean, a horrible background, what happened to him as a kid, and um and also some some problems, psychological difficulties, probably because of how he grew up. Anyway, he to- he told me that one time he was, uh, I think while he was in prison, um, seriously thinking kill- of killing himself. He had met the Dharma by this point, but then when he remembered that he would just be reborn, and that killing himself wouldn't pu- wouldn't be an end to his suffering, then he decided not to suicide. Yeah, and I thought, wow, first you know. He really had faith in, in rebirth yeah, and made a good decision there. And then the last one is assisted suicide. Yeah. And that is also difficult, you know, if somebody uh, asks for assistance in killing themselves. And in some places this is legal now. My college roommate, her husband, was really, really ill. They lived in California, and uh, he wanted to do assisted suicide, and she would have helped him, except the law hadn't gone into effect yet. So they didn't do it. And she was quite upset about that because he was dying slowly of cancer, and it was very difficult. Yeah? Yeah. On the other hand, if they had known Dharma, that still could have been time to put imprints in the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I had a friend who was a, hus- a hospice nurse, and she said, nowadays, uh, you know, if someone will accept the medicine and if their body can tolerate it, then most pain can be medicated. Yeah, sometimes people don't want the medicine, sometimes their body can't tolerate it, but uh, if it can, then it's it's quite different than than years ago. Yeah, would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. Then the completion of the action is that that being deci- dies before we do. So suicide is not a complete action. If we die before the other person dies, even though we intended to kill them, then it's not a complete act uh, because part of it is they have to die first. Okay? Then the second one is stealing, um, which is short for taking what is not freely given.
1: Someone is asking about people who kill themselves um, for political reason or out of compassion, such as monk Vietnamese monks during yeah. the Vietnam War and the immolations in Tibet, are those considered suicides and do they generate Ooh. negative karma?
0: Yeah, th- um, it depends on somebody's level of spiritual realization. If somebody has realization and they can direct where they're reborn, yeah, then it's not actually, it wouldn't actually be suicide. It would be a compassionate action. Yeah. For the monks in Vietnam who did that, some of them may have had realizations. I am in no position to judge that. Okay. Um, but I do remember, uh, I was in Dharamsala when the... Um, Self-emulations by some of the Tibetans began to happen. Many of them happened um, kind of uh, at a certain period of time, a few years ago. And especially, I think, one man, he may have self-emulated in Delhi, but the Tibetans in Dharamsala, you know, to him, to them, he was a martyr. And they even made a statue of him when you do the lingkor around His Holiness's. Residence. there's a statue of him in the, in the back there where all the stupas are. But um, And it, it put his holiness in a very difficult position because he couldn't say suicide is good. He's a monk. He couldn't say it's good. But the Tibetans were saying, you know, this man is a martyr for our cause and we love him and we respect him. But the message that His Holiness gave, I can't remember if he said these exact words or not, but the message was definitely to the Tibetan community. It's better if you live for the cause of Tibet rather than die for the cause of Tibet. Yeah? Because if you die and you give up your life, then it's over. What can you do? And if the people who are oppressing your people are so hard-hearted that they're going to let that happen, it's not going to do anything to actually bring about the political uh, change that you want. You know, although people on your side may cons- consider you a martyr and a hero, it, it doesn't actually change the situation. Whereas if you can live for a cause, then you have a lot of time where you can, hopefully a lot of time, where you can, you know, act in many different kinds of ways to change people's minds and to change the political situation and to be of direct benefit to people. Yeah? So it's interesting how, um, how cultures like to make people into martyrs. I think it's, person. I'm just speaking personally here, I think it's done to make the living people feel okay with the other person's death. It's not because the other person did something good, yeah. It's because the living people, uh, you know, feel bad. And, say, and saying that they're a hero, saying that they're a martyr, somehow makes it okay. In the same way, people fight wars, and if they're injured or killed in battle, they're considered heroes. Yeah? I think that's done for the sake of the living. The dead person being a hero does not mean anything to them at all. Yeah? But it makes the living feel good, and it makes young men, before they enlist, have some image of uh, a glorious death, which would encourage them to enlist, yeah, because if the military really showed what death in the battlefield would were like, nobody or even what PTSD in the battlefield were like was like, or even losing a limb in the battlefield. If they actually showed what war meant, nobody in their right mind would enlist. So they have to glorify war and glorify killing and make it for a cause and make you a martyr and make you a hero or a heroine so that young people... Will think that there's some value, something to be gotten out of killing other people. That's my take on it. Um, Jolene is asking
1: if someone is not able to live anymore without the support device, and the doctor wants a family to make a decision. Um, and there's no death will or you know living will. Yeah, and the family decides to take the person off of the support? Is that uh, a non-virtuous action?
0: You know, that one we've asked teachers, and it's very hard uh, to say. My guess is that it depends a lot on the situation. Um, If somebody is, let's say, brain dead, and uh, more than one doctor can say, you know, they're they're not going to be more than a, a vegetable, you know. And if their organs have already kind of shut down and the machine is the only thing that's keeping them alive, then they may already, they, they may be biologically alive because the machine is circulating the blood, but the consciousness may have already left yeah we don't know that if it, the consciousness is there or if the consciousness is left okay um, you know one la, sakya lama said in the case of terry skiavi that woman who was on life support for uh, quite a long time uh, huh yeah her well anyway whatever her last name was um, her first name was Terry, and um, uh, the family wanted to keep her on life support. Her husband said he knew that she would want to be detached from it, and so there was a whole big court battle. And uh, nah, 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 nah. anyway, the this lama said she had already died, and uh, you know, and any reflex on her part was just a biological reflex, not an actual indication of consciousness. Yeah. But if, you know, there is a chance for somebody to come off of life support, you know, and there seems to be a pretty good chance of it, then I don't know. I mean, I am not in a position to give these kinds of answers for specific situations. Mm -hmm. And
1: someone uh, euthanized their dog because it was very sick. And they're asking, was this uh, non-virtuous because their motivation was compassion?
0: Yeah, it's not as non-virtuous as if if their motivation were anger, for example. But yes, there is the karma of killing there. And uh, just so pet owners know, because it's very difficult. Pets in America are part of the family, okay? They are as important as brothers and sisters and more important than cousins.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because cousins may live across the country. You may see them every five years. But your pet, you love and you see them every day. Okay? So it's very difficult when they get sick. What we did here, um, because you know the original inhabitants or residents of the Abbey were me and two cats. Okay? So uh, uh, they died before me. Uh, And with both of them, you know, they were they they knew where they wanted to die one wanted to die in the in the dining room where everybody ate and everybody would be around them during a during a retreat during a retreat when we when still everything was going on in in ananda he wanted to be right there in the big room yeah And everybody came and said prayers over him and said mantra over him. And, you know, he had seizures. And, you know, but we were there through the... Somebody was with him through the whole process until he died. Okay? The second cat, he wanted to be alone in a private room. Okay? So he was in a room downstairs But um, we, and it was also during a retreat, but a few of us stayed with him during that whole dying process, and, uh, you know, he too had seizures, but we gave them instructions and we stayed with them, and in both cases, at one point, they stopped dying, they stopped breathing, Yeah. So, yes, it was difficult to watch them die. Um I think sometimes euthanasia is cuz we find it difficult to watch them die. Uh but also, I know in in the se- for the second cat, at least for me it was very healing to be with him there because he sat in my lap for part of the time while he was dying. Yeah. And that, I really, I appreciated him doing that, yeah? So there can, you know, be these moments of closeness when an animal or a human being is dying that if they were euthanized uh, would not happen. And I might
2: be remembering this wrong, but I thought that um, they talked about this thing about affliction for killing
0: at least at the end had to be um, something like anger.
2: Remember
0: that, that. Yeah, there's a causal motivation, and then the actual motivation. Uh, so in the case of of when they talk about bodhisattvas, the causal motivation may be compassion, but the actual motivation at that time has to be, you know, some kind of aggressive one.
2: And Is that right for anger?
0: It doesn't make sense to me, actually. What does it make? It doesn't make sense that, like, I, I can see that maybe somebody has a wrong view and they believe in killing for religious reasons, like animal, or sacrifice, or that someone likes to eat meat and hunt. Um, But I don't see why there had to be, would be anger at the... Oh, I think, um, I don't know if anger would be the right word, but my guess is because it is hard to take the life of another being. It's really hard to do it. Um, If that being is conscious and, you know, with insects, maybe it's easier. You don't consider them having mind. But with beings that you can clearly see, have mind, it can be very difficult to take the life. So there has to be some, something that overpowers that resistance. Yeah. That's just what it seems like to me. I'm I'm waiting for the question from Singapore. That always comes. Okay, so maybe I'll talk about it before somebody asks it. Because every time you say, you know, a question from there, I'm going, I'm, okay, I know which one it's gonna be. What if your house is infested with ants or termites? Yeah. So that question always comes. And often when people ask me that question, I get the sense that they're trying, they want me to give them absolution. Like in the Catholic sense, you know, like, it's not a good thing to do, but I'll tell you it's a good thing. And then even though you know it's not, you won't feel so guilty. And they want me to say, you know, to, to be, to give them the absolution, which I absolutely will not do. <laughs> okay. I will not say, yes, it's totally okay to kill insects. Yeah. And then they all say, well, what do we do if they're eating up our house? And I say, uh, you think creatively and do what you can and try and figure it out, but I am not going to be the one to tell you how to, hand, you know, what specifically to do. And then I'll tell them, uh, you know, about, because <laughs> we had a big problem here in Ananda Hall with ants uh, when we discovered that in the, a ceiling of the lower floor, going up to the upper floor. There was a huge, enormous ant colony living in there that uh, they they weren't the ones that ate the wood, but they were the ones that lived in the wood. And so then we were faced with uh, getting them out and doing our best not to kill them. And we really did our best and I think avoided a lot of deaths. We did not get an exterminator, okay? We took the whole ceiling apart. We took walls apart. We, we listened in walls with stethoscopes because that, that's how you can tell if there's an ant colony in a wall because there were so many in the, in the building. We didn't know where they all were. It was a big building. So, you know, who was it? You were new walking around with stethoscopes, you know, crawling around, listening, seeing if there were ants, and, you know, sometimes cutting the wall open, going out at night and looking for them, sprinkling sprinkling cinnamon all over the place, sprinkling chili pepper all over the place. Uh, Yeah, baseball, putting chalk all around the building. Um, you name it, we did it. But you know, one thing that actually did work—not for Nanda Hall, but um, when we had ants out in the in the cabin—was uh, doing the sur practice. Yeah, and making offerings to uh, these different living beings. And we had tried everything else with that building, but doing the sur practice, they left. And that's one reason why we keep, you know, doing the sword practice, because now they kind of expect it, you know. So, yeah, we want to give them something to eat, and they can arrange their own accommodation. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, can we go on? (laughs) Okay, second one is stealing, so... Taking what hasn't been freely given. Um, to me, hearing the words taking what hasn't been freely given has a very different flavor than stealing. Stealing, in my mind, is like, oh, I would never steal. You know, steal means, you know, you, uh, you wear a mask. Not a, not a COVID mask, but another kind of mask. And you break into someone's house in the middle of the night and you take their uh, uh, television. Although, who wants to take something this big out of a window, you know? But, uh, you know, it's that kind of nasty thing that you're stealing, you know, nasty way of stealing. But if we think of stealing that way, then we're going to miss all the ways in which we steal. Because there's many ways... in which we we take things that have not been freely given to us. For example, somebody loans us something, and we don't return it. It was not given to us, but we took it, and we were mindless, and we forgot, or maybe we even did it with intention, but it was not freely given to us. It was loaned. Okay. Um, we use company, uh, resources for our own private, uh, wishes and desires. So unless your employer gives you permission to, uh, to use company resources, you don't take paper or run up phone bills or, uh, use an office computer for your, your own private work or whatever it is, you have to, if your employer doesn't give you permission to do that, uh, then that's considered stealing, you know. So we have to be very uh, clear in our mind what belongs to who and what different th- things uh, we use for our work and what different things we use for the family, you know, f- uh, or uh, for our own personal use. Um, so, so many ways of stealing. I mean, embezzling, embezzling sounds horrible, you know, but cooking the books, yeah, I mean, the American attitude is pay as little income tax as you possibly can. So what do you do? You kind of, well, first of all, you, you have personal expenses and you take the receipts from those but claim them as business expenses so that your the amount of income tax you have to pay go down. So that's stealing. Okay? Uh, all the things we do, not to pay taxes, all the things we do to get out of paying fees. yeah, if you're a certain age, you get to pay less. So we lie about our age so that we fit into a certain bracket and we can pay less. Um, you know, all s- sorts of things. Using company prop a company car for our own private things and then billing the company f- for the gas. Um, yeah, I mean, just you can think about it. There's a lot. Okay so uh, these kinds of things. So it's not the kind of thing that you will necessarily get arrested over, but it is definitely taking what has not been freely given to us, okay? I think of uh, some countries. When I was in Japan, I walked in one residential neighborhood on garbage day, and what people in Japan throw out is like, looks brand new to me, you know? So there were these sofas and chairs and nice dining room tables and things that were all out on the curb to be taken away by the garbage, you know, the garbage person. And, uh, you know, so if you come along and take those first, that's okay, because the person has already relinquished ownership of it, okay? But, uh, you know, it, it was amazing to me about what they did. But if they haven't relinquished ownership, yeah, then it, uh, it becomes stealing, mm-hmm. OK, so the basis is an object belonging to another person. So it actually has to belong completely to the other person, something that is co-owned, but you you take the other person's part and claim the whole object for yourself. Then it's not a complete action, yeah. The attitude is first we have to correctly identify the object to be stolen, OK? And make sure you steal that one and not another one. Um, And then any of the three poisons. So you're attached to the object. You have animosity willing to destroy the wealth of an enemy. Or you ignorantly think that overcharging a customer, uh, taking things from our employer, or cheating the government is fine. That's all done out of ignorance. A lot of people do that, you know, overcharge a customer, take things from the employer, cheat the government. Yeah, and you're considered smart if you cheat the government out of tax. Taxes, which is, you know, our president who is so incredibly smart because he can say person, man, woman, camera, TV. You didn't hear about this? Yeah. He took a cognitive test. And you have to remember, recite some words back. And then some minutes later, they'll ask you to recite it again. And that's really hard, because the questions at the end are really hard. So he had to recite person, woman, man, camera, TV. And he said, if you get them out of order, you still get credit. But if you get them in the right order, you get extra credit. And he got extra credit. He aced that exam. I'm just telling you the truth. This is the news. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So he's very intelligent, that test shows. And uh, so I wonder if that has anything with his not wanting to reveal his financial information and his uh, tax reports to the voters. Did I say that okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you what the news said. Yeah. Okay. This this is what is world important news. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the desire to take that object, although it has not been freely given. Okay. So accidentally taking it and is not considered stealing, but you should still give it back. <laughs> Okay, then the action is taking the object or asking someone else to take the object through force, stealth, or deception. Includes not paying taxes, fees, tolls, and fares, and not returning objects we borrowed. And the completion is moving the object and or thinking, now it is mine, okay? So it's a very interesting thing. If somebody steals your things, it's considered compassionate to then say, I give them that thing, because that lessens the, the strength of the karma of stealing for them. But if you do that and then you go looking for the person who stole your stuff and you take it back, then that's stealing because you had given it to the other person. Yeah. So if you really give it to the other person because you want them to have less heavy karma, then don't go looking for it to take it back. Yeah. Okay, then the third one, unwise and unkind sexual behavior. Maybe we better pause here because this one usually takes a whole session because people freak out on it about it, although I don't think a, nun, a group of nuns are going to freak out about this. You guys should be pretty clear. But I imagine the uh, the uh, chat box on the there will be overflowing, yeah.
2: So uh, yes. If someone doesn't believe that um, not paying taxes is stealing, is that then not a complete karma because they don't have the intention to steal? They just think it's their right to not have to pay it. it that they, they're, they're not thinking that they're actually stealing, not taking what hasn't been given.
0: Yeah, well, that's kind of like the person who drinks rat poison, thinking that it that it won't kill them. Or no, it's like the person who drinks bleach to get rid of COVID, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter what you think.
2: I'm not, I'm not arguing that it's not, it's not negative. But I'm, in terms of thinking about whether it's a complete karma, there, ha, there has to be the explicit intention to take what hasn't been given. Whereas if you don't think that not paying taxes isn't taking what hasn't been given,
0: I don't know, anyway. Who doesn't think that not paying taxes isn't fudging? isn't doing something that you're not supposed to do. Who thinks not paying taxes is legal? They may say the government has no business taxing me. Or they do it for political, ethical reasons. Because the taxes are are spent on war. The people who do tax uh, resistance, whatever it is. But also another thing, what I did Mm -hmm. back in the old days when I paid taxes, is I wrote on the check... This is not to be used for military equipment, weapons, or anything causing harm to other living beings. That wasn't why I, you know, like my taxes were an offering, and the government does use some taxes for people's welfare, and that's how I wanted it to be used. Yeah? Yeah. But when you live in a country, it is your responsibility to pay the taxes, even if you think it's unfair. Even I mean, otherwise, with what you're saying, uh, nobody consider you don't consider avoiding paying taxes as stealing. Then nobody will pay taxes. Yeah, and if me walking in your room and, uh, you know, uh, borrowing your mandala set and not telling you about it and just thinking that anyway you would you don't care and you'd give it to me. Uh, and, and I don't consider that stealing. Does that mean that it's karma-free, that it's not stealing?
1: Jolene is saying that last week we were discussing that as Buddhists, We are trying to push the ants to go away, but a non-Buddhist believer will just kill them, Mm -hmm. like other family members and colleagues in the office. How do we tell them this is non-virtuous?
0: You go and you stand in front of them like this, and you go, this is (laughs) non-virtuous. Cut it out. Yeah? Uh, I mean... Is that what you do whenever you see somebody doing something non-virtuous? You go and interrupt what they're doing and tell them to their face? And are they instantly going to stop it because you've told them? Yeah. Or even you don't tell them to their face, you write them a nice note on flowery stationery saying, Excuse me but this is non-virtuous. Are they going to stop it? If these people, you know, you have to have a certain kind of relationship with people in order to comment on these kind of things and have them listen to you. You know, people are not going to listen to strangers or acquaintances and especially people they think are preaching morality to them. It's, you know, telling them it's not virtuous doesn't doesn't do any good. If somebody is a Buddhist, you know, and you know that they have respect for karma and its effects, then you can talk to them and you can say, you know, you may not have heard this in teachings, but... You know, or you may not have read this, but I read this in a book, that this is a negative action. So you may want to think about uh, another way to handle the situation.
2: Be an example, and you capture these insects very carefully in a cup with a paper and you take them out. Mm-hmm. And I was just astounded. My sister saw me doing this for years mm-hmm. when we were together, and, and I just could see her sort of frowning and... You know, making faces, but not saying anything. So then she told me about five years ago, and she was still working in the medical clinic, that she was starting to capture flies carefully and take them out of the building, and her colleagues were going like, Cheryl, what what, what are you doing? And then they started doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's the best way to do it, yeah, to act as an example. Yeah. Yeah. Once uh, we were staying with some Catholic nuns and uh, there were some, how, how was it? Oh, one of the sisters was going to smash an insect and I interceded because she was a Catholic nun and, you know, for her ethical conduct was really important. And so I just kind of did this, it was very automatic, I didn't think much about it. And I just said, you know, let me take it out. And then a whole discussion began about, you know, why as Buddhists we don't kill insects and, you know, why they think it's okay. And, you know, it evolved into something, uh, quite an interesting discussion. Yeah. But that was with somebody who I knew had a lot of respect for, for karma and its effects. When I lived in Seattle and I walked around Green Lake, sometimes you would see people fishing there and it just pained me, you know, to see people fishing. But I knew I couldn't go up to them, they're perfect strangers, and say, do you know that fishing creates non-virtue? You know? I don't know, maybe in Singapore somebody would go, oh, no, I didn't know that. Thank you so much for telling me. But in America, somebody would look at you and go, you know, who do you think you are uh, lecturing me about morality? If I want to fish, I'm going to fish and uh, with you. (laughs) Okay. So, uh uh-huh.
1: And there's a question about stealing. So someone says I watch Dharma videos in between not so busy hours in the office for fifteen minutes and sometimes longer. However, I often worked overtime for the company too without being paid. Is this considered stealing from the company?
0: Yeah, I think if if um there's nothing else for you to do and if you repay that time by working overtime, you know, then you're I mean you're still working for the company and you're just re- working at a different time. I wonder if, too, another tricky ethical area to add to the killing list is some animal testing uh, for medical science. Yeah. Especially now, I'm guessing, a lot of vaccine trials are being conducted yeah. on animals. And we're going to benefit if there's a vac- yeah. vaccine. So what do you do? Ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- I mean, that's why uh, I, I don't do medical testing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I know people who have uh, changed careers once they started uh, learning about ethical conduct. Uh, we had somebody come to the Abbey who was an exterminator, mm-hmm. and when he started, who was it? Was it I said, yeah. Matt. Okay, and he started learning about karma, and he changed careers, yeah? And Jason also changed careers, you know, uh, in the same field, but because he didn't want to be involved with, I think it was medical testing or something like that.
2: I did my undergraduate in neuroscience, and I'd set up my uh, honors program to do something on um, Parkinson's disease. And then when I was being walked through what I would be doing with my supervisor, it was be um, injecting certain, um, uh, basically causing little baby mice to have a certain disease, to have Parkinson's, and then so we could see what uh, a drug or something would do for them. But I was going to have to decapitate these little mice and then um, do experiments on their brains. Mm-hmm. And I was vegetarian at the time, just slowly starting to learn the Dharma, and then I started having nightmares. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. I can't do this, what, mm-hmm. Like, because I, I understood the benefit, but the personal cost of the ethics and yeah, it, the inner conflict um, came through and then I changed course. Yeah. Good. Okay, so we'll
0: stop here.